Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. And today we are celebrating the 50th anniversary of Iris's collection, The Sovereignty of Good, which came out in 1970. Now, if you don't have this collection, you can either buy it uh, in a single edition format from Routledge or, and perhaps um, more wisely, as it's about the same price, you can pick up uh, the collected essays, which has uh, not only these three essays in, but also um, numerous essays from out Iris's career. It's called Existentialists and Mystics. It's edited by her biographer, Peter Conradi. The Sovereignty of Goods um, was brought together in 1970, but it was actually a, a collection of three essays. The Idea of Perfection, which was uh, first published in 1964, uh, On God and Good, which was published in 1969, and The Sovereignty of Good over Other Concepts, from which the collection takes its name, in 1967. Joining me on the podcast today are three world experts in philosophy and particularly in Murdoch's philosophy. And I'm delighted to have them with me today. Um, our first guest is Justin Brokes, who's a professor of philosophy at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. He edited the collection Iris Murdoch Philosopher, which came out in 2012 from um, Oxford University Press. And I would say for those of you who are deeply into Murdoch's philosophy and don't own this, um, it really is um, one for the bookshelves. So you can pick it up um, very reasonably in paperback. It's about £20. And um, there'll be a link below the podcast and you can uh, click on have a look. And in that volume, there's a nearly 100 page introduction to uh, Murdoch's philosophy and particularly the sovereignty of good. There's a very long section where Justin goes into quite a lot of detail about it. And I know today he'll be talking about some of that. And that gives a picture of the philosophical and political world that Murdoch was trying to um, reshape and also reacting to as well and at the moment he's preparing a philosophical commentary on the sovereignty of good hopefully out next year with OUP again hello Justin hello hi coming in from from Germany this evening our second guest is Hannah Altorf who's a reader in philosophy at St Mary's University Strawberry Hill in London where she was um, program director of philosophy for eight years she's written widely on Iris Murdoch and um, her work Iris Murdoch and the Art of Imagining came out a few years ago um, with Bloomsbury and of particular interest to some people I'm sure she co-edited and translated um, The Sovereignty of Good into Dutch uh, just a couple of years ago. Hello Hannah. Hi. Hi. And our third guest today is um, Mark Hopwood who's an assistant professor of philosophy at Sewanee the University of the South in Tennessee. Evening Mark. Evening, how are you doing? Yeah, well, thanks. And he's currently writing a book on Iris Murdoch's uh, moral philosophy, as well as co-editing um, a collection entitled The Madochian Mind, both of which are with Routledge. And I'm sure we'll mention The Madochian Mind later, as it's one of the major um, collections coming out in the next year or so, with um, lots of new material from, uh, you know, 30, 40 experts, all taking a particular slant on Murdoch's philosophy. But this, what we'll do for the podcast, we'll go sequentially through the collection. So if you've got it in front of you, we'll go through the idea of perfection with Justin. Then we'll go through on God and Good with Hannah. Um, and then we'll go through the sovereignty of good over other concepts with Mark. And then we'll join together and we'll have a conversation um, um, in the second half of the podcast. So Justin, over to you. Talk to us a little bit and encourage us into reading the idea of perfection. The idea of perfection, I think, is a magnificent piece of work, but it's not an easy thing to come to. It has the form of a reply to a book 
by Stuart Hampshire called Thought and Action, which in the 1960s was fantastically influential. It had come out, I think, in 59. And Murdoch took it to be, uh, and many other people took it to be, a sort of prime statement of a certain picture of human beings in the world. Um, And she thought, it was very important to bring this into question. One of the things that makes reading this article now a little bit hard for us is that Stuart Hampshire's book has, I won't say been, it's not been forgotten, but it's certainly not the dominant piece of work that um, in the 1960s it seemed to be. So, how do we approach it? I think one of the things that may be helpful is to remember that the book, sorry, that Murdoch's article is actually a reply not just to Hampshire, but to Hare, Richard Hare, who was at that point a very major voice in Oxford moral philosophy. But wider than that, it's a reply to a certain kind of existentialist thinking. It's a reply to a certain kind of empiricist thinking that you find in Hume. In particular, to put it in just a relatively sort of simple way, a simple nutshell way, um, the empiricist existentialist picture puts the emphasis upon the idea that the world itself contains no morality. The world consists of facts understood ideally in scientific terms. And if we accept moral claims, what makes them count as moral is something like that they're expressions of a certain form of willing, um, that is a certain way in which we desire things to be the case. And what Hare in this um, sort of 1960s important um, movement proposed was that it was the form, the particular universalizability of moral claims that made them count as moral. And Murdoch wants to opposed to that a possibility that really morality is something to be discovered, not something to be made up. And that in fact, in the end, instead of seeing morality as a matter of the will and a certain kind of sort of arbitrary making up what is to be valued, instead, we should recognize that there's much to be learned about what is to be valued. Now, the title of the book, sorry, the title of the article, uh, The Idea of Perfection, could could give people some difficulty here. You could ask, what on earth has that got to do with that topic? I think the core of the article um, comes with a discussion which we'll come back to later in this podcast, where Murdoch takes a particular example of a mother-in-law and her daughter-in-law, and the mother thinks initially that her son has married a silly, basically an airhead, a silly girl. Um, And later she reflects upon this and changes her mind and comes to as the story is told, something that we would take to be a more just and loving view of her. Now, being used in order to 
reply to the uh, empiricist, um, so to speak, no morality as in the world kind of view, because I think at least part of it is that there are real moral characteristics of the daughter-in-law which have not been properly recognised by the mother. Um, but what happens in the section that follows is that Murdoch tries to tease out what was the justification, supposedly, for the empiricist will-based view of morality. And it was that in a certain, at least this is one of several strands, but one of them was that in a certain sense, the meaning of concepts was derived from the way we learn them, and in particular, derived from what was overtly visible at the time when we learn them. So it's related to verificationist views, which of course were very big in the 1930s, and you can think of Hare's moral philosophy as in part a kind of continuation of that kind of thing. And what Murdoch puts in reply to that is a view that actually we don't grasp moral concepts, at least in any of the most important ways, through our first acquaintance with them. On the contrary, we constantly deepen, if we're lucky anyway, the if we're attentive and lucky, the understanding we have of those moral concepts. And she uses the example of repentance, and she uses the example of courage, and she uses the case of love. She says all of these things are things our conception of which changes as our experience develops. Now, that actually means, surprisingly, given that she's a kind of a moral realist, but it means that the moral conceptions that we have are also quite likely to diverge. As our experiences diverge, our individual um, crucial notions may well take different forms. It will turn out later, in the later essays of this collection, The Sovereignty of Good, we'll find her reworking some of these ideas in a more platonic spirit. And you'll get the idea that Ultimately, we can hope that our understanding, your understanding, my understanding, if only they reached an ideally good form, would converge. But in the short term, you can't expect convergence. You can only expect that actually many people are opaque to each other. They're not in principle opaque to each other. With any luck, you could have soulmates. You can have people who put great effort into trying to develop their understanding of each other, which will include an understanding of those complex moral concepts as they develop. But for many of us, we have to say in a certain sense that we live in somewhat different moral worlds. Absolutely. So, and it's worth pointing out, I think, how radical her work was. I mean, this is, this is, this is the high point of her philosophical career in some regards i know she'll she'll go on and, and write much more in the 80s and 90s but this this um, her work was really going against the grain at this moment justin wasn't it absolutely absolutely and i think it's it's very interesting i think it's not accidental that she wrote this very important work after she had left oxford she'd been a, a, an extremely professionally successful Philosopher, at least you know the you know she she had fifteen years where she was an Oxford tutor, and she was welcomed as, in a sense, a natural 
terrific philosopher right at the start. And I have to say, I think that things got worse for her during the 15 years that she was teaching in Oxford. And I think, in a certain sense, she was probably rather glad to leave, quite apart from the fact that she was pushed. And uh, she... I think found her voice partly through having a little bit of distance from the place. She was both a tremendous insider and a tremendous outsider. Yes, absolutely. And I think that comes through the biography, the philosophy. And indeed, I think it, it, she inhabits those kinds of ideas within, within the fiction of the, of the period as well. You can see that the, um, her middle period of fiction, I know we're not talking about the fiction primarily today, but you can see that change happening at the same time, I think. Hannah, do you want to talk just a little bit about the development of how the idea of perfection um, moves through into um, On God and Good. Thank you, Miles. Yes, so the On God and Good is in the middle of the collection, but it's the last uh, article that she wrote. And I think, like Justin, I think these are not easy texts to, uh, to think about and to write about, to read. And I sometimes find it easy, rather than sort of summing up every argument that is in there, to simply look at a few sentences. And in this case, On God and Good is actually framed by two very fascinating sentences at the beginning, at the end. Murdoch is very good in, in writing good, clear sentences that I think make fantastic quotes. And this is certainly not accept, uh, no exception, this, this uh, article. So she starts by saying, to do philosophy is to explore one's own temperament and yet at the same time to attempt to discover the truth. Extremely rich. It's not entirely sure why she starts like that, because the second sentence is related, but not very clearly. In all she essays, she really thinks about what it is to do philosophy and the topic itself. And I think in that sense, she's very much like Plato in that I think Plato is often also talking about how to do philosophy and yeah. the topic he's writing about. And Murdoch seems to be doing that a lot as well. So here her concern is that philosophy is losing out or there's a void, she says, in philosophy. Science is, is, is marching up and religion is collapsing or disappearing. What she means by the disappearance of religion is I don't think she's making a historical statement. I don't think she's trying to say, oh, we used to be all religious and now we are no longer. I think rather that might be true, it might be not true. It's not her main interest. Rather, she's talking about an experience or I think that is disappearing. Right. So the sort of comfort with which people talked about ritual or about sacrament in which they engage in ritual and sacrament in in, in uh, religious communities is, is disappearing. And Murdoch says, can philosophy save any of the values involved? That is her, her concern here. And so if that is her concern, can philosophy save some of the values that religion used to, to hold? The different the philosophy is going to ask a different question. And her central question becomes, how can we make ourselves morally better? which must have been quite an outrage, I think, to some of her contemporaries and probably to some of our contemporaries still. So how can we make ourselves uh, morally better? Now, why do we need that? I think uh, Justin already uh, sort of suggested that we are not according to Murdoch Wills, but we are, she calls us the fat, relentless ego. So we are um, uh, systems of energy that are basically concerned with ourselves 
and, and not much else. We can't really have good insight in how we work. I hope Mark will talk a bit about the start of the sovereignty of good of other concepts, which I think has a fantastic description of that fat, relentless ego. So that's her concern. How can we make ourselves morally better when we are fat, relentless egos? And she says, well, prayer used to be one of those techniques that we used to, to make ourselves morally better. What is prayer? It's not a petition, she says, but it's attention to God, which is a form of love. And so then she starts to sort of say, how can we retain this notion of God? And she gives a couple of characteristics that this notion of God has. She says, well, God is an object of attention. Can we retain a notion, any understanding of an object of attention? That object of attention is transcendent. Can we retain a notion of transcendence? It's non-representable. Can we retain that? Can we understand that? So a large part of the essay is simply trying to go through those different concepts necessary, real, object of attention, transcendent, etc., and trying to see, can we retain that in some form or another? And what I find striking in that is her constant going back to experience and to experiences of love and experiences of art. So she will say, well, you know what it's like to fall in love or to fall out of love and how we do that. Or she says, consider Shakespeare, you know what I'm talking about. She says, look at um, uh, Piero, or she even says, paint like Piero, I like to paint like Piero, she means Piero della Francesca, and you know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about perfection. So throughout all her explanations of this notion of God, she's talking about art a lot. And that brings me to the last sentence. So if she wants to sort of change philosophy at the start, at the end, she says in what is one of my favorite quotes, I think, she sort of sums up the essay, I think, very beautifully. She says, for both the collective and the individual salvation of the human race, art is doubtless more important than philosophy and literature more, most important of all. And I like this quote because it's very succinct. It just tells us exactly what is happening. Um, but it's also rather dramatic, right? So what's the problem? Well... The human race needs salvation, individually and collectively. Where does the solution comes from? It comes from art and it comes from literature. Then the question, of course, arises, does it come from Murdoch's own literature? But that is, I would think, an entire podcast altogether. It, and it will be at some point, I'm absolutely sure. <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah, but this is, this is what she does, isn't she? She uses real examples. I mean, she moves away so much from what we might term... Um, the drier language that's like Hampshire, um, AJ Eyre, Ryle, people like that were, were using in their own work at the time. She does and she doesn't. So she talks a lot about, for instance, the virtuous peasant. And um, I, 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 when we translated it, we had a real difficulty translating that. And we made a lot of jokes about how to translate that as well. I think at a certain point we said, or perhaps it should be the virtuous bicycle repairman or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> that was when we were very tired at the end of the day. Um, in the end, we went to something that was quite similar in the text of Simone Weil. Um, and so the Dutch equivalent of that. But it, I do think so. So it seems to be like she's talking for real people. But I also think this is this is something that she reads in the great novels that she admires so much. 
Oh yes, you can see, you can see the the, um, the influences bouncing off each other. And Mark, you can see that in um, in the third essay as well. Um, not only is she really you know gnawing at the bone of Kant in, in in a certain sense, but she's also you know she's going back to nature, isn't she? And she and that most beautiful um, moment in the essay, and perhaps one of her most um, recognisable moment of the hovering kestrel. Right. The um, <clears throat> yeah, the kestrel is it's another one of you know, Murdoch's alongside M and D. Uh, one mm. of them memorable kind of examples and, and moments. Um, um, it's one that I, I have a, a colleague here where I work who's a, a biologist and he's fascinated by this example. Uh, it was very important to him to know whether Murdoch knew very much about birds. Um, so the, um, the Kestrel example um, is, um, well, maybe I'll, I'll come back to it in a second, actually. It's, a, it's designed to, um, to answer a sort of a question or to help us with this, um, this problem um, of, of selfishness. So, um, so Hannah, um, Hannah mentioned that. Uh, and one thing I, I think is nice about the, the sovereignty of good over other concepts, um, it's a little bit more, I think, accessible than the other two essays. Uh, it's still hard. I mean, both, so both Justin and Hannah noted um, and neither the idea of perfection nor on God and good are, are easy works to read. And that, that's true of the sovereignty of good over, over the other concepts as well. But I think it's a little bit more accessible. And so I, I don't know whether um, the rest of you do the same, but when I'm teaching Murdoch, I recommend that people read this collection backwards. So I think the sovereignty <laughs> of good over other concepts, although it's, um, it's the last of the three, is actually the one that I would recommend to people um, to read first, I mean, partly because uh, it doesn't have quite as much um, discussion of the contemporary philosophy of her day in it. She gets to her point more quickly. Um, and also because um, there's a fairly clear setup for this essay. So th there's one fundamental question really that she starts with and she states it right towards the beginning. How can we make ourselves better? How can we become better? Um, and I think for people who are not in the world of philosophy, that might seem to be a very obvious question for a philosopher to ask, but as, as Hannah already mentioned, um, within philosophy, uh, that's quite a radical thing to think that a, a philosopher could take on the question of how we make ourselves better. Uh, and so this is the question that Murdoch starts with. And then she says she's gonna um, use two fundamental assumptions in her argument um, in answering this question. So one is that human beings are naturally selfish uh, and the second is that human life has no external point or telos. And so she's thinking about like, a traditional conception of God, where there would be um, a meaning of life at, at the end of it. And she thinks there is not that. Um, but the point about, about selfishness is really, it's the main um, problem of the essay. How do we overcome this natural selfishness? Um, and Hannah, Hannah asked if I would talk about it. It, it might even be worth um, reading a very um, a very brief quotation, if that's okay. Yeah, from, please do. Yeah, absolutely. From the essay. So, so here's what Murdoch says about our selfishness. The psyche is a historically determined individual, relentlessly looking after itself. In some ways, it resembles a machine. In order to operate, it needs sources of energy, and it is predisposed to certain patterns of activity. The area of its vaunted freedom of choice is not usually very great. One of its main pastimes is daydreaming. It is reluctant to face unpleasant realities. Its consciousness is not normally a transparent glass through which it views the world, but a cloud of more or less fantastic reverie designed to protect the psyche from pain. 
it constantly seeks consolation, either through imagined inflation of self or through fictions of a theological nature. Even its loving is more often than not an assertion of self. And then Murdoch ends, I think we can probably recognize ourselves in this rather depressing <laughs> description. Um, oh. It's one of my favorite passages of Murdoch. And I, when I teach this essay, um, in the past, I've taught it alongside the novel, The Sea, The Sea. Um, and I have the students read the novel first. And many of them, um, when we look at this passage, they will immediately say, oh, it's Charles. <laughs> She's talking about Charles. Yeah. And they find a very, a very natural example of this kind of um, selfishness there. But they also, I think, as she suggests, we, we can all find this in ourselves. And so, so the challenge um, the paper set up around is how, how do we overcome this natural selfishness to become better? Um, and Murdoch's answer, more or less, is through a change in consciousness, a change in the way that we see the world. So as, um, as Justin was saying, one of her great um, kind of innovations, one of her great points is to say we can become better just in the way that we see, just in terms of our vision. Um, and then she gives all of these wonderful examples. So she talks about examples of the kind of change of consciousness that can happen um, in the case of natural beauty, um, in our encounter with art, um, in our encounter with techne. So she means uh, her example is learning a language. Um, and then in um, situations having to do with moral virtue. And so that to come all the way back to the the Kestrel example, Murdoch imagines herself um, brooding um, in a bad mood, uh, brooding on some damage done to her self-esteem. Um, and then um, I'll uh, briefly read something from this passage as well. Um, and then she says, then suddenly I observe a hovering Kestrel. In a moment, everything is altered. The brooding self with its hurt vanity has disappeared. There is nothing now but Kestrel. And when I return to thinking of the other matter, it seems less important. So the idea here is that um, something like natural beauty can cause us to escape our natural selfishness by directing our attention towards something else, some independent reality. And Murdoch very famously says in another piece, love is the extremely difficult realization that something other than oneself is real. Um, and she goes on in the essay to talk about how we can have that experience in our experience of great art, um, experiencing the, the reality of something else, going beyond our selfishness. Um, she has a very beautiful description of what it is to, to learn a foreign language, to realize that learning a foreign language requires a kind of submission to something that is not oneself, um, something that you'll never fully get taped. It's always beyond you. Um, and then finally, she um, develops her argument to talk about how moral virtue is like that. Becoming a better person is about getting beyond this selfishness, this self-absorption, uh, and becoming capable of seeing others um, as they are, allowing their, their reality to intrude into your life. Um, so there's a lot more to the, uh, the paper than that, but that might be a good, a good kind of intro to it. Yeah, I think that really is, because it brings out so many of the other issues that we've, um, we've been talking about already. And I think we, we can already see, see um, threads running through all three three essays and I, I wonder Justin if you want to maybe pick up on that think about what you know what is concurrent between between all three clearly the idea that and it goes back actually to an important article of hers that I would sort of put on the reading list as well vision and choice in morality which I think is 1956 um 
the idea that, in a sense, the core of morality can be regarded as vision, the way we see the world, if only we can see the moral characteristics of people and things, events, occurrences, actions in our environment, if only we see those things well and justly, then we're improving our moral vision. And that actually is what goodness in large parts, or the core of goodness consists in. That is an idea that I think runs through all of them. One thing that strikes me as kind of interesting is that she is described often as being a Platonist. And I think you could read Vision and Choice and Morality and read the idea of perfection and have no idea that Plato was of any special importance to her. It's absolutely not... I mean, the core of her philosophy is there, and yet there's it's not stated in Platonic terms. But what happens is that, in a certain sense, I believe, she sort of wakes up and suddenly says, oh, my goodness, what I was doing was reinventing a view which actually Plato got to long ago. Um, there's one wonderful moment where she says, I'm, uh, you know, in one of her notebooks, she says, you know, trying to do some philosophy. I'm sure it's all in Plato. She <laughs> <laughs> sort of... Yeah. Um, must have had this experience of working things out for herself and then suddenly saying, oh, my God, I was rejecting Plato. I thought that he was a, you know, smooth-talking, smart guy. But actually, I realise he saw all the stuff that I'm so laboriously reinventing. So what happens is that what gets presented in the first essay in somewhat Kantian terms, this talk of the idea of perfection, the idea that, in a certain sense, our usage of terms has a sort of, there's a perfect understanding of concepts that our own employment of them will never match up to, but we can hope gradually to move forward towards. That is a Kantian version of what later will be put in platonic terms about there being a platonic uh, form and it being for the human being released from the for the prisoners released from the cave to come out and get a chance to see so that there are great continuities but the material is packaged in completely different ways in the different essays yes and it's, it's this question about um perception and the individual and looking again isn't it let's look again this 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 phrase that, yeah. that comes back and especially with m&d i want to um hannah i wonder if you want to sort of explain m&d to us so i think justin already um hinted a bit what it was so it's an example that she brings in in the idea of perfection and I think, in a way, it's a platonic move, right? So in, in Plato's dialogues, often they say, let us look at something concrete, a concrete example, right? What is what is uh, piety? Well, it's what I've just done. And Murdoch says, well, I could take a ritual. She says a couple of things, I could have taken something else, but I'm taking this example. And it's phrased in what I think a very middle-class British way, if I'm allowed to say so. So she says M is a mother-in-law who thinks her, her son has 
married beneath his um, his standing, his class. I don't think she uses the word class, but it's more or less implied. And, and she thinks D is vulgar, is a bit... Uh, uh, yes, yeah, I think she uses words like um, unpolished, lacking in dignity, pert, familiar. But Murdoch says she behaves and behaves perfectly towards D. And then at a certain point, she has a sort of shift. So D has moved away, is no longer there. And then Murdoch says something that I've always found very uh, fascinating, right? So this was her for M's first idea about D. And then she says, however, the M of the example is an intelligent and well-intentioned person capable of self-criticism capable of giving careful and just attention to an object which confronts her. So you see here this notion of attention, of looking, etc., coming back. But you also have an idea, like a little idea of why it is exactly that M changes her mind. But that's not Murdoch's point. She changes her mind. She says to herself, I may be prejudiced, I may be snobbish, let me look again. And there you have indeed the phrase, let me look again. Mm. And she looks again, even though D isn't there. And she says, well, perhaps uh, she wasn't vulgar, but refreshingly simple, not undignified, but spontaneous, not noisy, but gay, not tiresomely juvenile, but, but delightfully useful, youthful, uh, and so on. And that is the example with which she starts. It comes actually, I think, relatively early in the example. And she keeps trying then in, in what... Uh, in what follows to make her point that what really matters is that nothing changed. We couldn't see any change in M's behavior. And yet this is an important uh, sort of event to think about in a moral philosophy. And she's really frustrated in what follows that she is unable often to do so. Yeah, I think there's there's something really important in what um, in what Hannah just said about being prevented from saying something that you want to be able to say. I think that's really, it's fundamental to the way that Murdoch, at least as I read her, thinks about philosophy. So she sees philosophers as being engaged in this practice of making pictures. She famously says man is the creature who makes pictures of himself and then comes to resemble the mm. picture. So she thinks that philosophers are kind of creating pictures, images. She talks a lot about metaphors. Um, they're often doing that without knowing it. <laughs> the philosophers are presenting, presenting an argument, but the argument presupposes some kind of underlying picture. Uh, and Murdoch's real problem with a lot of the philosophy of her day is that it gives us a picture of what a human being is, what human life is, that just completely prevents us from making sense of all kinds of things that are actually very much part of our lives. So um, you know, the, um, our experience of what it is like to try to love another person and how we can do that badly and try to do it better, um, our experience of art, our experience of literature, um, there are all of these things that Murdoch thinks just don't make sense within the picture that the philosophy of her time was was offering. So um, <clears throat> as Hannah, I think, said earlier, there's this constant appeal to experience. She'll say to the reader, look, you already know this. <laughs> this is already familiar to us. It's just that we have a philosophy that isn't allowing us to say it. And so what we need is a different picture, a different set of metaphors. Um, and to, to Justin's point about Plato, that's part of what she finds in Plato, a new picture, a new set of metaphors that is supposed to uh, make it more possible 
to make sense of these these areas of our life. Yeah, and yeah. I, what's interesting as well, if I may, is that she's talking about a mother-in-law. So sometimes when I teach this, I try to put up a picture, you know, on my PowerPoint slides. And if you Google mother-in-law, okay, <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. have for a while before you have a nice mother-in-law so it's really interesting that she's taken not just two women which is quite unusual I think in her time but also such a a, a, a notion that we think negatively about right oh. especially in, especially in British humor of the time I mean you know the yeah. the mother-in-law joke was the sort of stock in trade of um, comedians in the 60s and 70s so in, yeah. in some regards it's quite a radical act for her to do this yeah I think so I think so and and uh, that's actually interesting. She wouldn't say so much explicit about that, but I think it's it's significant. Uh, and you often find that, like also the virtuous peasant is also often a mother of large families, for instance. So so women do come in from time to time um, in her work. I think this is it, it's significant because you know, Murdoch is often accused of being kind of apolitical in her philosophy of not having anything to say about politics. But th there is this political dimension to it. She she describes M as being imprisoned by a cliche. Yeah. Uh, so this is one of the ways in which for Murdoch, we can fail to see others as they are. We can be imprisoned by cliches and th those cliches can have you know very social and political roots question of how often, so to speak, in a very theoretical voice, she says there are philosophers who prevent us from saying something that we need to say. Um, it seems to me that she's fighting to find a suitable language and in a certain sense to find her own voice. And I think she this is one of the reasons why the work that she does is hard, and it's inevitably hard. It's because she came to write a kind of philosophy that needed a new language, and she comes at it in slightly different ways. In many ways, I think there is a parallel here with Plato, but it's with the Plato who the analytic philosophers of the time tended not to read, you know, but Plato keeps coming at things, the same kinds of issues over and over again from completely different angles and with different kinds of machinery, different kinds of dramatic environment. You know, sometimes it's a dialogue, sometimes it's a monologue, sometimes it's presented as a, I mean, in the symposium, you've got the many voices, the many different people in a, to a drinking party talking about what love is. And then within that, you've got a man who presents us with a the view that a priest has given him on, um, you know, what love is. So, the, you know, the whole thing is fantastically, you know, over and over again, you've got things which are presented in a more... Um, high-flown language and then instead in a very low, down-to-earth kind of language. The question is how you can find the right way to say the things that are necessary in philosophy. And I think in some ways Murdoch is trying something similar, though, you know, she is still very much a child of her own time and a child of her own 
philosophical world, the Oxford world, but she worked so hard to look beyond that. And it seemed to me that in these essays, she finally finds a way really to build upon what before had been kept in little boxes and kept apart. And I'm thinking here that there's the you know, the, the study of the history of philosophy, there's the 1960s philosophy, and then there is a really deep excitement about continental philosophy, the ways of doing things and the doing of things that was so different from what the Oxford philosophers were up to. And, you know, she'd been so excited during the 50s. You see this particularly in the letters to Kono, I think, where, you know, she's giving herself a philosophical education in just the things that the other Oxford people just don't bother with. Kierkegaard and Hegel and uh, Marcel, and of course Sartre, who, you know, she gets excited by, but she ends up thinking is all wrong. You know, I think that it, 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 she's constantly searching for ways to give us a new vocabulary, a new way of saying things, and a new way of discovering worlds that without a new language we couldn't discover. Yes, I absolutely agree with that. So if we think of this um, small collection as kind of the... Um the midpoint of her philosophy. Um, perhaps one of you could speak on how it actually develops through into the 70s, into the 80s, and there is it um, changed at all in metaphysics as a guide to morals? Is it um, are, are some elements of it discarded? How's her sort of philosophical trajectory working after this collection? Well, I can say a few things, and then the others can uh, chip in uh, to get us started. So I think a couple of things. So. One is, so the idea of perfection, for instance, is much longer than the other two. And I think part of the reason is that she's much more engaging with the other thinkers around her, which and she takes more distance in the latter two essays. So I'm really interested to hear, for instance, that Mark suggests to read the, the three essays backwards. And I actually, I looked at our translation today and I, I found that we put actually on God and good first. So there is something about her moving away from the, the, the debate that's there that's going on in um, in Oxford and, and finding her own voice um, much more. I think what happens, one of the things that happened for me in Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals is that she gets even more into her own voice and often that makes it even more difficult to read. So my first encounter with Murdoch was Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals and I was fascinated and I didn't understand much at all. And I still have passages where I think I can read and read and still not sure what she's talking about. And I think why it's so fascinating Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals, um, one of the reasons for me is that you really see a thinker Think. Like you really feel you're you're sort of with her. She's thinking her way through. She's doubting her way. You're in the middle of it. It's there's real urgency because she wants to save us. Uh, at the same time, uh, short arguments are just arguments are just indicated very very briefly. And so half of the time you're lost. But something fascinating is happening. So I think that's one. The other thing that really strikes me in metaphysics as a guide to morals is that she is more explicitly talking about religion religion and uh, ritual, especially in the chapters that I, I know better. So, for instance, in um, um, chapter on imagination, she says things like 
one would like to know whether on the whole Mary or Martha led a better life. And I think those kind of sites are just fascinating and, and worth staying with for a, for a while, right? So again, Mary and Martha, I think she she has that obsession with the women that might not have be with all her, her male colleagues. But also this idea that one would like to know that. Do you think, do we still want to know that? Why would we want to know that? And so I think the book is is not to be read as a sort of, oh, these are the arguments, but as a sort of engagement with with thoughts that is different every time you read it. And I think that's sort of the develop one of the developments is that she moves away from a more structured way of thinking and more to a sort of urgent way of thinking. Mm, and as you say, the, the Martha and Mary, the, the, the balancing of the active and the contemplative as well. Mark, do you want to, to come in and place something? Yeah, so I think as... Um... As Hannah says, you know, she doesn't get easier in one sense. You know, Metaphysics: A Guide to Morals is a, it's a hard book. My first encounter with it, like Hannah, I was fascinated, but I, I read it on a bus, and I think I fell <laughs> midway through chapter two. Um, I just, um, it was too much for me. Um, but when, um, you know, when I eventually managed to make it all the way through, it's one of the, it's one of the few books of philosophy that has made me genuinely emotional by the time. I finished reading it. And I I think one of the reasons for that, as Hannah said, is, is this very personal book. She's writing about a question that I think is very important and very important personally to her. And it's, you know, maybe to oversimplify somewhat, it's something like, you know, in in a world, in a world without God or in a world without you know, the God of traditional religion, um, what do we look what do we look to as a, a source of value, a source of um, meaning in life? And that's a um, that's a very personal question for Murdoch. And I think it is for a lot of other people as well. So if I was going to commend metaphysics as a guide to morals um, to people, despite the, the difficulty, you know, I would say it's taking up that absolutely fundamental question it, for people who are turned off by what they perceive to be the dogmatism of traditional religion or they can't come to terms with the metaphysical claims, but feel that there is something there um, that that we are that that you might still find missing in contemporary moral philosophy. Um, then I think that that is the question that Murdoch is is tackling. It's it's an incredibly urgent one. Absolutely, and to think about um, I suppose Murdoch today as well. I mean, I, I was looking, Justin, I was looking back at your collection, actually, over the last couple of days in preparation for the podcast. And there's an essay in there by Maria Antonaccio, and she um, she talks about, I'm sure, you know, it's written 2009, 20, 2010, whenever it might be. And she says that still Murdoch has not had a particularly large exposure, I suppose, to um, the philosophers of today. And yet in the last 10 years, we've seen an enormous upswing in um, variety of philosophers taking on her ideas very seriously. So I suppose my question to Justin first and then to, um, to Hannah and then to Mark is where do we see the sovereignty of good today? Do we see it as a really central text that philosophers really do need to engage with? The simple answer is yes and extremely, I think. I think it's a really path-breaking work. Um, it is interesting that it was it was so much misjudged at the time. Um, the last essay, um, "The Sovereignty of Good Other Over Other Concepts," 
appeared as a pamphlet because it had been a special lecture in Cambridge. And Anthony Kenny reviewed it somewhere. And he, you'd have thought as a Wittgensteinian, he would have had plenty of sympathy with Lotz in it. But no, he sees it as a expression of Platonism. And he says, you know, representatives of other views will have no difficulty thinking how to reply to her arguments, but it's good to hear them presented in the way that she's presented them. And you think, what colossal condescension and misjudging of what she is doing. I'm, I was actually quite shocked at how he had failed really to see what a huge change she seemed to be trying to make. And I'm only incredibly glad that, you know, 50 years later, we're finding that that change in in large parties is being easy. I mean, let me see, she's pushing at a door that was completely closed at that time. And now there are a number of people who would quite like to go through it and are trying to find ways to make it open. Yeah, I, I would um, add to that. What I think is really interesting um, is in recent years, I think in the last two years, suddenly people have picked up on the notion of love in the sovereignty of good. And to be honest, I was one who didn't actually see it that much. And then when I went back to it, um, I just realized it's actually there really prominently. But it somehow seems that very few people wrote about that until the last two years and then there's suddenly like 10 articles or something like that and I've done mine bit but I think what's really interesting with that notion of love and the and the sort of idea of attention to uh, issues is also its use that I think it could have in environmental ethics for instance and I know there's going to be an article in Mark's collection and I know Miles you have a PhD student working on that I do yes in, yeah, and I think, but I think that's that's the the richness of the text is that you can read it and reread it and find new elements in it. So I think when I wrote my PhD, there was very few on Iris Murdoch, and I wrote it, and then it was it became a book, and then I thought, okay, everything's been set, and then this came this second wave of interest in in Iris Murdoch, and I returned to her, and I just realized how rich the texts. Ah, and how many ideas are still in there that haven't been explored a lot, like love, for instance, that's only recently being explored, and uh, how, how yes. much was to contribute to so many different uh, conversations. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. And you know, one thing that you can you say about Murdoch, and it really echoes um, <clears throat> Justin's point and the, the story about Anthony Kenny, there are very few philosophers I've read who I think have been so consistently misunderstood as, as Murdoch. Um, and in many cases, it, it's kind of astounding when you go back to the text, she's quite clear about what she's doing. She tells us at the beginning of most of her essays, the question she's gonna approach, how she's gonna approach them, um, but she's doing it in a very different way from most <laughs> of her time. And so much of that stuff has just been ignored. Um, and so you get people, I, either there's the unfriendly people who will regard her as saying something palpably absurd and not take it very seriously. There's the people who are trying to be friendly to Murdoch who will say, well, you know, we, we need to reconstruct her arguments and make a more systematic version of this position um, in this way that, that does end up looking, <clears throat> I think, rather rather patronizing um, and in fact what she's doing is much more interesting and much more radical than, than people have generally thought so I think we're at, at quite a, an exciting moment with Murdoch's scholarship because there's not 
there's plenty of points in Murdoch that um, that should be criticized. She's not she's not going to be right about everything. There's um, plenty of arguments to be had with her. But to a large extent, those arguments haven't been had because people have been arguing against something that's not her view. So there's a lot of um, really, really important work um, still to be done by by philosophers. And and for people who are not you know, academic philosophers, not not professors, maybe people who are just interested in her literature, Murdoch is one of those rare philosophers who is really trying to speak to the problems that you and I encounter in our very everyday life. And she she is, you know, sometimes there's a little bit of effort in coming to, to grips with her. She's not easy. Um, these are complex arguments, but but the problems are very much, they are the problems that you and I are facing in lockdown as we try to <laughs> deal, deal with our yes. families, you know, remember how to love each other. Um, uh, as we you know, think about how, how do I look beyond the difficulties of lockdown for me and engage with the reality of other people whose lives make this whole situation an awful lot more difficult for them. Um, you know, looking yes. past one's own selfishness is a big, big problem right now. And, and Murdoch has a lot to say about it. Um, so, so I think she, you know, she really deserves engagement yes. um, as an academic or, or as a non-academic. And if I could add one little thing, it's, it might be that she is, of course, difficult. We've been saying that she's a difficult philosopher. And some people might imagine if she's difficult for the philosophers to read, then it must be even harder for, so to speak, the people who aren't professionally trained in the subject to read her. But I would say no. I would say Murdoch's philosophy is difficult, but it's it could easily be equally difficult for the people who are the professional philosophers and the people who are just, um, so to speak, free inquirers, uh, wondering if she could be helpful as a guide. She is difficult, but she's, in a way, the professionals bring to it um, professional deformations that are going to make it harder for them to understand it, as well as having advantages that make it easier for them to understand it. And I'd say we'll all find her hard and just for different ways, for different reasons yeah. in different ways. Yeah, I like that. And also, I think it should be added that she's also funny. She's much more funny than people often think she mm -hmm. is. So it can be really a joy to read it as well. So if we all talk about unselfing, which is important in her writing, she also makes a lot of jokes. It's not just all kill yourself or kill, kill the big fat ego. It, there's really a lot of jokes going on. And that makes it enjoyable to read as well. Yes, absolutely. So, so there we are, really. I, I, I suppose we've got... You know, it, it's good for lockdown. It's um, you, you, you can you, you can approach it as a non-philosopher, and also there is some humour, as there are in the in her novels. Indeed, you know, Murdoch as a humorist does ex, um, goes goes beyond the fiction and and into the philosophy. So, if you are interested in um, in philosophy, if you've never tried um, one of Murdoch's uh, works, certainly perhaps take take Mark's um, advice on board, um, pick up the Sovereignty of Good, but read it backwards. So, my thanks very much to um, my guests today. Um, to Justin Brokes, to Hannah Altorf and to Mark Hopwood. Next time on the podcast, we'll be um, going going thematic and we'll be looking at Iris Murdoch and the moving image. And um, joining me on that podcast will be Lucy Bolton from Queen Mary University of London, 
Rebecca Moden from the, my own institution, University of Chichester, and um, Anne Rowe joining us um, to discuss her own work on the visual arts. So my thanks to um, my guests today and my thanks to you for listening.